Welcome to Episode 8 of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, newly retired professor of humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. Last time I considered the memorials of Tavistock Square and their relationship to its history and that of London as a whole. This time I want to look at a much more famous London landmark, the Monument, built to commemorate the destruction of London in the Great Fire of 1666. I will discuss the significance of its location, the hidden complexities of its structure, its many functions and changing meanings. I will also use it to illustrate and illuminate the life of its maker, Robert Hooke, one of the most influential of all Londoners. Patreon subscribers can walk down a truly bizarre alleyway to discover the monument's profound significance for Sigmund Freud, and although it is apparently the, the tallest freestanding stone pillar in the world, thrusting 202 feet into the air with fire erupting from its tip, that significance is not what you might think. Robert Hooke was born in 1635 into genteel poverty on the Isle of Wight. His father was a curate, the least secure, worst paid, hardest working of Anglican clergy. His childhood was one of ill health, piety, and penury, and it ended early. Hooke's father died when Robert was 12, leaving the boy 40 pounds and a pile of books. Robert immediately sold the books and set off for London with 50 pounds, worth a lot more than it would be now, but not nearly enough. It was a risky time to be an orphan teenager in London. The civil wars had created enormous and continuing political, social, intellectual, and especially religious upheaval. Hooke, a quietly devout but very unpuritanical Anglican, sought a kind of sanctuary at Westminster School, where he lived with the famous headmaster Thomas Busby until 1653. Then, perhaps on Busby's recommendation, Hooke went to Christchurch, Oxford, which, like the university as a whole, had undergone a thorough religious purge. There he joined a group holding Anglican services in secret, and that encounter shaped the rest of his professional as well as his spiritual life. The group included several members of the Invisible College, a loose association of natural philosophers gathered around Thomas Wilkins and Robert Boyle. They were well-born, wealthy royalists, conservative in their politics and religion. Hooke, who shared their views, if not their privilege, quickly made himself indispensable to their scientific work. For the Invisible College was devoted to empirical research, that is, discovery through experiment, and Hooke had been keen on contraptions since childhood. He seems to have been able to design and build just about any experimental instrument and to improve just about any instrument that had already been built. During his working life, he made significant improvements in the thermometer, the barometer, the telescope, the microscope, the sextant, the watch, the spirit level, and a whole man cave of other tools and gadgets. Hooke was soon paid a stipend by Boyle, who was one of the richest men in Britain, and he thought of himself as Boyle's employee until the middle of the 1660s. A small digression. 
If Hook is now known for anything, it is for his prolonged public self-destructive disputes with other natural philosophers. His feud with Isaac Newton was so awful that after Hook's death, Newton is said to have used his position as president of the Royal Society to have the only portrait of Hook destroyed. Newton's famous self-deprecatory remark that he saw further only because he stood on the shoulders of giants was probably a jibe at Hook, who suffered from severe curvature of the spine and did not have shoulders that anyone could have stood on. But Hook, unlike Newton, also had warm, intimate, lifelong friendships and collaborations with Busby, with Wilkins, with Boyle, and most creatively, with Christopher Wren. Hooke probably met Wren, who was three years older, at those secret Anglican services, though they may have known each other at Westminster School. They had a great deal in common, a clerical family, a sheltered childhood, exceptional intelligence, uncontrollable curiosity, enormous energy, superb mechanical and mathematical skills, dangerously unfashionable religious and political beliefs. They were also interestingly complimentary. Hook was prickly and private, Wren charming and gregarious. Hook was highly organized, Wren more impulsive. For the rest of Hook's life, they worked together in an utterly harmonious, enormously productive partnership, which gave London much of its modern shape and many of its landmarks. Lisa Jardine, who wrote biographies of both men, said, the collaboration was so close that it is often difficult to decide whose was the greater contribution. It allowed both men to develop their ideas and put them into practice, to arrive at outcomes beyond anything they might have achieved individually. But before Hooke worked with Wren, he worked for Boyle, and their first project was the construction of an air pump that could create and sustain a vacuum. Their goal was to provide an experimental justification for experimental science, to prove that the great authorities of antiquity, Aristotle, Ptolemy, and Galen, the almost universally and uncritically accepted sources of knowledge about the world, could be wrong. If Hook and Boyle could sustain a vacuum, they could stick a lit candle inside and watch it go out. And if they could do that, they could empirically disprove a key proposition of Aristotle, that the four fundamental elements were earth, air, water, and fire, because the fire visibly depended on some property of air. And if they could not unquestioningly accept Aristotle's authority, they had license to figure things out for themselves. When the restoration of the monarchy made it safe to return to London, Boyle, Wilkins, and others established the Royal Society, the visible successor to the Invisible College. Its motto was nullius in verba, loosely translated as don't take anyone's word for it. But that skepticism about authority had already been the key principle of their work for a decade. Hooke was not a founding fellow of the Royal Society. He was its first, and for a time, its only paid employee. He was curator of experiments, responsible for public lectures, regular demonstrations to members, and maintenance and improvement of the Society's equipment. 
As such, his biographer Stephen Inwood calls him England's first professional research scientist. This position reflected Hooke's economic and social insecurity. Unlike his colleagues, he had no family wealth or professional income. In fact, he had no home. He lived in the society's premises at Gresham College, and the demonstrations normally took place in his front room. In the years before the Great Fire, those demonstrations often had to do with optics, making creative use of Hooke's innovations in the microscope and telescope. For example, Hooke made a hole in the roof of Gresham College for his zenith telescope. That is one that points straight up at a single small piece of sky. The purpose of this odd instrument was to prove Copernicus right and Ptolemy wrong by detecting and calculating astral parallax, the minute changes in a particular star's position as the Earth orbits the Sun. The attempt was a failure since the vibrations of traffic and air currents made observations of sufficient accuracy impossible. But as we will see, Hooke was nothing if not persistent, and the Gresham College Zenith Telescope had a successor. In the 1660s, Hooke also pursued his interest in the composition and properties of the atmosphere by trying to measure barometric pressure and humidity at different heights, climbing the tower of Old St. Paul's to do so. Again, watch this space. Those experiments, initially unsuccessful, were just the beginning. In the years before the Great Fire, Hooke was also engaged in his greatest scientific work, his exploration and revelation of the world made visible by his new powerful microscopes. He made full use not just of his mechanical genius in improving the instruments, but also of his skill as a draftsman to record what he saw. The result was the Micrographia, the first book published by the Royal Society and one whose publishing costs were underwritten by Wren. There, Hook revealed a new world, or rather a new vision of our world. He showed his readers the beautiful, extraordinary, utterly counterintuitive visual appearance of small everyday things when they are magnified. A flea, a fly's eye the tip of a needle. The book is not only stunningly beautiful, it is also full of inventive, provocative scientific meditations. In it, Hooke was the first person to use the word cell, in its biological sense, to describe the, well, cellular structure of cork. He also engaged in speculations about the nature of light, which anticipated, and according to Hooke, inspired, the later work of Newton. Then, in four days in September 1666, Hooke's life was transformed again. The Great Fire destroyed all the unsold copies of the Micrographia and got to within a few meters of Hooke's home and laboratory at Gresham College. But because the college was one of the few substantial buildings to survive, most of it was commandeered as the headquarters for the Rebuilding Commission. Hooke was suddenly at the heart of the greatest urban regeneration project in British history. 
and his energy and ingenuity once again seemed indispensable. He received one of three city appointments to the commission, and yet another stroke of luck, Christopher Wren was one of three royal appointments. Both Wren and Hook submitted plans for the comprehensive redesign of London. With rational grids of residential streets, wide avenues leading to landmark buildings, and riverside promenades, Hooks actually had the approval of the Royal Society, but both schemes were soon recognized to be impractical. The new London would be built of different materials and to different designs. Its arterial roads would be widened and straightened a bit, but its geography would be largely unchanged. As Surveyor General of the King's Works, Wren was given overall responsibility for the reconstruction. He also designed the churches that gave the new city its distinctive character, but Hook was his manager, his assistant, his partner. Surveying sites, procuring materials, supervising workmen, cajoling suppliers, monitoring progress. And as city surveyor, Hook was responsible for laying out streets, determining the boundaries of properties, ensuring safety of construction and adherence to new regulations, and resolving disputes. More than anyone else, more even than Wren, Robert Hook shaped the city that emerged after the fire. Hook was also the architect of several important new buildings. The Royal College of Physicians, the Bethlehem Hospital, Nougat Prison, Merchant Taylor's School. His designs were innovative and elegant and often combined several functions in a way that seems sweetly typical of their creator, but he and we were unlucky. The only one of his constructions to survive today is, at last we have arrived, the monument. A column in remembrance of the fire was part of the planned reconstruction from the start. The 27th Clause of the Rebuilding Act of 1667 may well have been written by Hook himself, and the better to preserve the memory of this dreadful visitation, be it further enacted that a column or pillar of brass or stone be erected on or as near unto the place where the said fire so unhappily began, as conveniently may be, in perpetual remembrance thereof with such inscription thereon, as hereafter by the mayor and court of aldermen in that behalf be directed. But other structures were more urgently needed, and the obvious location, the site of Fariner's Bakery where the fire began, wasn't big enough. When it was decided that the nearby parish of St. Margaret's Fish Street Hill would be combined with its neighbor and the church would not be rebuilt, its site became available and it was perfect. The plans for rebuilding London created immediately after the fire all had one feature in common, important buildings to be admired at the end of wide, straight streets. But the London that was emerging was nearly as wayward in its streetscapes as the one that burnt. No grand views here, but this, this was an opportunity for an exception. For St. Margaret's had stood in the middle of the roadway of Fish Street Hill, which ran up to Leadenhall Market from London Bridge. A column or pillar of brass or stone erected here would be a focus of attention 
for every newcomer or tourist approaching London from the south. It would be a landmark. It would also, of course, remind Londoners and visitors of the catastrophe that had destroyed the city. And, this is important, act as an inspiration and an encouragement to recovery. It was not just mourning loss, it was also celebrating rebirth. A long Latin inscription at the base gives an account of what happened, and a bas-relief sculpture allegorically represents London's re-emergence, thanks to the generosity and benevolent guidance of the king. Wren and Hook were, of course, committed royalists. One of the oddities of the monument project was that its shape was decided, indeed mandated by law from the start. That was because, so delightfully typical of Hook this, it was never going to be just a monument. It was also going to be a laboratory. The hollow core of the column was going to be the tube of a gigantic zenith telescope. The platform at the top was designed for experiments with pendulums and falling objects, a successor to the Tower of Old St. Paul's. The steps of the staircase were of exactly equal height to enable sequences of precisely calibrated atmospheric measurements. A workroom was built into the foundations. In other words, the experiments done in various makeshift surroundings before the fire would now have a custom-built laboratory in a monument to the fire. What an amazing idea. You can still climb to the top of the monument. 311 steps is a bit too many for me these days, but the view, I'm told, is still pretty spectacular, even though it is now surrounded by skyscrapers. Rooftop viewpoints are a commonplace these days, but in 17th century London, and I think in Christian Europe, this was a first. Until the monument was built, access to bird's-eye views of the city was reserved for people with the right connections or the right keys, and of course birds. Almost a century after its completion, James Boswell made the ascent, and the experience was clearly still overwhelming. When I was about halfway up, he admits, I grew frightened. I would have come down again, but I thought I would despise myself for my timidity. Thus does the spirit of pride get the better of fear. I mounted to the top and got upon the balcony. It was horrid to find myself so monstrous away up in the air, so far above London and all its spires. I durst not look round me. There is no real danger, as there is a strong rail both on the stair and balcony, but I shuddered, and as every heavy wagon passed down Gracechurch Street, dreaded that the shaking of the earth would make the tremendous pile tumble to the foundation. Obviously, this was a powerful experience, and one that Boswell apparently could have had nowhere else. The monument was completed in 1677. At that point, the new cathedral had barely been begun, so it was the tallest and the most conspicuous thing in a city that was still largely a building site. But even when rebuilding was complete, it remained one of the most striking and strikingly complex of rebuilt London structures. It was a landmark to be seen, a text and images to be read, a telescope to be seen through, and a viewpoint to be seen from. In short, it was as profound an exploration and celebration of vision 
as the micrographia. In short, it is the masterpiece of an utterly idiosyncratic genius. Buildings outlive their creators and the circumstances of their creation, and the postscripts to the monument story are not all happy. A line was added to the text on its pedestal, baselessly blaming Roman Catholics for the fire. This, I'm glad to say, was eventually removed, but only after a libelous century or so. The climb to the top became popular not just with tourists, but also with drunks and suicides, and the city eventually caged in the platform. When London Bridge was rebuilt in the 19th century, it was moved upstream 100 meters, so the column doesn't greet new arrivals from the south as magnificently as it once did. And alas, the vibrations from London's traffic didn't just make Boswell tremble. They also made the Zenith Telescope impossible to focus, so the monument was never much used as a laboratory, and the workroom was sealed up after Hook's death. Hook's reputation suffered, too. He died before his enemies, who shaped public perception of their disputes. He also died without family to write reverent biographies. Thanks to his hagiographic son, Wren received credit for much of the work he and Hook did together. But the 21st century has been kinder. Leo Hollis, Lisa Jardine, Stephen Inwood, Michael Cooper, and others have done much to give Hook the place he deserves in London's memory. Giants all, to whom I am unambiguously grateful. That's enough for now. Thanks again for listening. To find out about Sigmund Freud's wise meditation on the monument, become a Patreon and follow me down alleyway four. Next time, I will look at the stories behind a couple of memorials in Westminster Abbey. I hope you will join me then. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Alan Hertz. My producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.